With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, September 18th. On today's show, we'll talk about the moon. Finally, I always want to talk about the moon. Yes, SpaceX CEO Elon Musk has announced the first private customer who has signed up for a trip around Earth's moon, possibly as early as 2023. That was good news for Elon Musk. The bad news is the space story came out shortly before the Justice Department announced they would now be investigating Musk's other company, Tesla, over public statements he and the company have made on Twitter. Those statements also included a 420 joke. That's really the yin and the yang of, of Elon Musk and Tesla. There we right are, there, yes. <laughs> Next, we'll be joined by Margaret Sullivan, the media columnist for The Washington Post. We'll talk to her about the trend of tech barons buying media companies. That's what Salesforce founder and CEO Mark Benioff did this past weekend with his $190 million purchase of Time magazine. Benioff said he made the decision on something of a whim, which I guess tells you something about how much money he has. Sullivan knows a little bit about tech titans buying media companies. Her own employer, The Washington Post, was bought by Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos in 2013. We'll talk to Sullivan about what this sale might mean for the future of time and just generally about the growing entanglement between big tech and journalism. And lastly, we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, some of the most interesting stories we found online this week. All right, April, let's get the show started. How are you doing this week? I am good, but actually my head is on the moon in a way. Uh, we're going to start with a clip about the intentions to one day get civilians to the moon and not professional astronauts, but people like you and I. It has been 50 years since Apollo 8 achieved lunar orbit in 1968. The time has come for civilians to fly to the moon. In 2023... SpaceX will launch the world's first private lunar mission with its spacecraft, BFR. All right, so to be clear, that was not us. <laughs> I do have a cold this week, but my voice cannot get that deep. That was a clip from the new website, dearmoon.earth. The website sprung up in conjunction with SpaceX's announcement that uh, the first private citizen to make a trip to the moon will be the Japanese entrepreneur, Yusaku Maezawa. And he has decided that he's going to buy all the seats on that lunar mission and fill them with artists of different types so that they can come see the moon, see the earth from the moon and be inspired. So I love that there is a huge art component about this. I think it's very, very important that we think creatively about how we innovate and and how those innovations uh, will affect our daily lives. And, you know, not just think in terms of how we're going to be able to monetize them, but also how they're going to 
enhance our, our world. And, and that really is uh, one role that artists can play. So to me, this is exciting. I do want to add, though, that BFR, uh, although they're saying now it stands for Big Falcon Rocket, my understanding is that the F used to stand for a curse word, uh, something else. So it was a uh, big effing rocket, if I if I understand correctly. But uh, but yeah, so now we have a private civilian going to the moon and Musk says it's going to happen in less than five years or about five years. And there's a chance I heard that Musk might be on the flight himself. Whoa. I wonder how, how he would uh, get along with all those artists. His tastes obviously run a little toward the, um, what should we say, the lowbrow side of the, of the aesthetic spectrum. <laughs> it's true. He likes stuff like South Park. Uh, if the artists are listening to this show and you're planning to go to the moon and Musk is on, please start a Renegade Instagram account. I will follow you with all of my heart. Uh, this, or if you have internet, I don't know if there'll be internet on there. There's so many questions about this. But, you know, this this news came about Musk's uh, sending a civilian to the moon at the same time that uh, or around the same time that we heard that Musk is under investigation by the Justice Department. Right, Will? It can never be. It can never just be all good with with Elon Musk. I know. And, what an And enigma. Tesla and SpaceX and Solar City. He has to do these amazing amazing things and then uh, undermine them with his weird uh, antics um, and ego. Uh, Yeah, so in in this case, the investigation, uh, we don't know exactly what it's focusing on, but it seems to revolve around one infamous tweet where he said that he was thinking about taking Tesla private at at $420 a share. And then the part where he really got himself in trouble was the last two words where he said, funding secured. Of course, as we now know, funding was not secured. In fact, it fell through. And so the Securities and Exchange Commission has been conducting an inquiry. Uh, and now the DOJ is involved in what is likely a criminal probe um, into whether he committed securities fraud somehow by making false or misleading statements uh, that were material to the company's finances, perhaps uh, convincing investors to, to make ill-advised decisions on that basis. Right. And so we have, you know, Musk's personal emotional <laughs> roller coaster that we're all kind of watching him ride. But then his stock is also on a roller coaster as well. Tesla shares fell more than six percent following the report that the Justice Department is investigating uh, the, the the Tesla uh, announcement that he had made in August that he was taking the company private and that he then rescinded just a few weeks later. Yeah. And let's talk for a second. I want to get your thoughts on on the privatization of spaceflight. I mean, this is this is something that's been going on for quite a while now. Yes. The last time that a human being flew near the moon, I believe, was 1972 with the Apollo 17. Uh, You know, it seemed in that five-year period uh, after the first lunar orbit that people would just be going to the moon on a regular basis. This would just be a thing from now on. And then it stopped. And now it's private industry that is is reviving these dreams. I don't know if that, you know, the the cliche about how government can't do big things anymore. Mm. Um, How do you feel about about, uh, people like Elon Musk? Uh, There was also... Um, the era of space tourism started actually in 2001 when a California businessman named Dennis Tito paid to get a ride on the Russian rocket to the International Space Station. That was organized by a company called Space Adventures. Right. I remember that. And Lance Bass wanted to go into space. Uh, I want to push back on the idea that this is a private company doing it because SpaceX is only able to do this thanks to tremendous contracts from NASA, right? I think contracts that are, you know, hundreds of millions, perhaps I think billions. I, I'd have to check my numbers, but, but you know, series of contracts. And, and SpaceX has only been able to develop 
its BFR rocket and its reusable rocket technology and innovate so much and, and have so many test flights because of its contracts with NASA. So uh, I think it's a little murky to say that this is like a private only endeavor because this actually isn't possible without a tremendous amount of public funding going into it. When we're talking about projects this big, I think that uh, there has to be a public-private partnership. And, and although SpaceX is certainly a private company, uh, they certainly have a lot of public partnerships. Right. And, and now we've got this element of arts patronage as well, right, with Mayazawa saying that he'll he'll spend the money to bring a variety of artists along. I don't, I don't think he's announced who they'll be yet. I, I don't know if there'll be a contest or what, but that's kind of cool. I think it's cool because the idea of going to the moon is very much poetic, right? It's 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 something that uh, doesn't necessarily have a purpose uh, flat out yet, unless we're like mining for space minerals somewhere or we're going to make a lot of money. And, it, and I don't know if that money is going to trickle down to any of us. I mean, NASA is something that inspires people greatly. It inspires children. And I think that uh, there is a role for uh, arts to be adjacent to and working hand in hand with the sciences. And uh, and to me, this is actually a very exciting uh, partnership that 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 Musk is working with somebody who is uh, such a large patron of the arts on this. And what more poetic craft to take such a historic flight on than the big effing rocket? That is right. BFR. I think that's just so funny. Uh, So that is, of course, not the only piece of news we are going to talk about this week. There was also a change that happened this morning involving the social media uh, website that I am most addicted to, Twitter. Right. So I saw the tweet from Jack Dorsey. There was one last night and and one this morning, something about allowing you to go back to the reverse chronological timeline, right? Yes, yes. So they're caving to the power users in this case. People have been complaining since 2016 when Twitter actually decided to stop uh, having the reverse chronological timeline, which it was very much famous for and kind of differentiated it from Facebook. So uh, just to, to put a little context, you know, everybody knows Facebook is a highly curated algorithmic timeline. Twitter for many years was, uh, you see it as it comes. It was in real time. That was the excitement of Twitter in 2016, perhaps in an effort to court more new users in, so that way they don't feel like they're just jumping into the fire hose. Twitter announced it and actually then implemented uh, changes that it would start to uh, show the tweets from people who you follow and interact with the most, uh, things that they like, you know, stuff that that you might actually be interested in as opposed to just whatever's happening at the moment. Now Twitter is going to give an option that allows you to toggle back to the reverse chronological timeline. Uh, that option is is available in settings, but they're going to make that even more convenient in later days. Right. And so you, they did already make it possible to go into your settings and turn off this feature called show the best tweets first. It's sort of a funny euphemism for for what most of us know as the the algorithm. Um, but now when you do that, you really will get the full reverse chronological list. It used to be that even when you did that, you would still get these features like in case you missed it and recommended tweets from people you don't follow. Now you'll just see the old school reverse chronological feed of everybody you follow when you do that. And then, yeah, the, the bigger later change, I think, is that they're going to try to make it easy to just flip back and forth between the reverse chronological setting and the algorithm. I think there's a risk here for Twitter because the algorithm has actually been an 
unsung success story in helping to turn around their business. Um, they were in a lot of trouble. They were actually looking for buyers about two years ago when they started implementing this, this software that would show you personalized tweet recommendations. And everybody says they hate it, but at the same time, all of Twitter's data shows that it makes people tweet more and reply more and fave other people's tweets more than they were doing with just the strict reverse chronology. Right. And to be clear, to to go back to reverse cron, you have to actually opt into that. So the default is going to be algorithm. You know, what's really interesting to me here is what made Twitter famous or at least popular amongst people who have large followings is the uh, real time aspect of Twitter. Right. I mean, we were watching revolutions unfold in real time as people were sharing information. Uh, sports, you know, we could follow along with fellow fans as the dunk was happening and, and still do. The Adding the algorithm to it kind of confused things, made stuff seem less immediate. Uh, now people who are really newsy can go back to that. This seems like a really fair compromise to me. Uh, I actually probably am not going to change it back. What about you? No, I'm not going to change it back either. I mean, the, the thing I about I like these... seeing what people like. <laughs> yeah, and, and I see more tweets now from the people whose tweets I actually care about. And it's, it's sort of hard to remember now. <laughs> Whose tweets don't you care about? <laughs> no, it's okay. You don't have to say. <laughs> most, most people's tweets I don't care about. Yeah, most right. of my tweets, I assume I most of my followers don't care about. No, no, no. And that was the thing. Like, you used to have to, yeah, you used to have to really prune your follower, your, your list of people you followed. You had to, it was like a big thing where you were always worried. You had this anxiety about, oh my God, I'm following a thousand people. And now I'm getting a hundred tweets a minute from people I don't care about. And you had to be constantly unfollowing you, people. With the algorithm, you sort of have that freedom to just follow as many people as you want and the algorithm will decide which tweets you see but there there are downsides i mean people you'd be uh you'd wake up and and be eating breakfast and you'd see tweets coming from yesterday's emmy awards as if they were happening right now and and so that was awkward all right we're going to take a quick break when we come back we'll have our interview with margaret sullivan media columnist for the washington post Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So before we interview our guest today, Margaret Sullivan, the media columnist for The Washington Post, I want to take a moment to go through some recent history of the tech industry putting its cash into buying media properties. Yeah, this is. there's been quite a bit of this in recent years, right? I mean, famously, Chris Hughes, the co-founder of Facebook, bought uh, the magazine The New Republic, I think in 2012, and then 
sold it four years later after that didn't go very well. Yeah, he bought it for something like $2 million and invested something like $20 million in it. And Slate actually was probably one of the first publications to launch with the help from big tech. Uh, Slate oh, was point. <laughs> uh, started as an online magazine project of Microsoft in 1996. But to go through the history, there was use, as you said. And then in 2013, Jeff Bezos came in to swoop up the Washington Post for $250 million. In 2014, we had Pierre Omidyar, who bankrolled the founding of The Intercept with Glenn Greenwald and Jeremy Scahill and Betsy Reed. Then last year, Lorraine Powell Jobs, the widow of the late Apple CEO and co-founder Steve Jobs, bought a majority stake in The Atlantic, which is now on a hiring spree, it seems. And now we have Benioff's time. And that brings us to our next guest, Margaret Sullivan of The Washington Post. Before joining The Post, she was, as many of you may know, the New York Times public editor, one of the greatest of the New York Times public editors, in my opinion. Uh, Before that, she was editor-in-chief of the Buffalo News. She also has taught in the graduate schools of journalism at Columbia University and the City University of New York. And she joins us now from Slate Studios in Brooklyn. Margaret Sullivan, welcome to If Then. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. So just to start with more background, Mark Benioff is the CEO of Salesforce, which is a wildly successful enterprise software business that deals with kind of managing sales and marketing contacts. And, you know, now he is going to be the owner of Time. He bought it with his wife for $190 million from the Iowa-based magazine publisher Meredith. And Meredith uh, bought Time Incorporated, uh, which was a suite of magazines, back in November of last year. Benioff just bought Time. Benioff here in the Bay Area, where I am, is a household name. Uh, His name is on multiple children's hospitals where thousands of babies are born a year. He also just built the largest office skyscraper west of Chicago. You know, we often hear tech execs mostly from Facebook and Google, not Salesforce, to to be fair, but labor the point that they are not media companies, right, that they are tech companies. Uh, And Bezos and Benioff, you know, are not in the camp of Facebook and Google, but they do come from kind of the same worldview of the American technology industry. And I was wondering, Margaret, if you could kind of help us understand what this means to have tech executives buy media companies. Is there something that we really need to be thinking about here? Well, you know, I can talk about it um directly as being an employee of the Washington Post, uh, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, as you said. And it's, you know, it's been a very, very positive thing for the Post. Um, The Post was, you know, know, I think you could say it was troubled, as a lot of newspapers uh, were, and was really trying to, to be a local newspaper. And, you know, Bezos has sort of switched that around so that the Post has very big national and even global ambitions. And, you know, just as you said that the Atlantic is in a hiring spree, so is the Washington Post. Um, One of the interesting things about Bezos's Washington Post is that by all accounts, he keeps his hands off the editorial product, which is run by Marty Barron and was when Bezos came along. Marty hadn't been there very long, but he remains. And of course, he's a, you know, extremely well-respected editor and, you know, has said multiple times that, you know, Bezos doesn't say, do run this story or don't run this story. But it does seem like, uh, you know, that's what you would want. You want the editorial content left alone and run by journalists. Is that always the case? Uh, Probably not. And, you know, there are billionaires and and billionaires. They're, They're not all going to be respectful of that. Now, Benioff says directly that he that he will be that he doesn't you know, he he doesn't want to tamper with the news product at time. And I guess we'll see about that. He he also has said 
however, I mean, it's not really a however, but he also has said that he thinks that time aligns with his values. So I think that's all sounds perfectly okay. I don't know uh, how great we'd feel if, you know, some other billionaires started talking about how they've bought a legacy magazine or newspaper and that aligns with that they're happy because they want it to align with their with their um, values. It might not always sound so great. Yeah, that's a good point. And let me ask a little bit more about the case of Bezos and the Post since you brought it up. because that does seem like, at least on the surface, an example of, of the upside of this kind of arrangement. I mean, the Post is doing very well. Does Bezos, does, it, does a tech executive like Bezos just bring the money? I mean, you talked about the Post's um, widened ambitions, uh, the, the, the reach of their journalism is greater now, the scope of their journalism is greater. Is that just him saying, here's a ton of money, go do good stuff with it? Or is there something else that he is bringing? Is it a management style? Is there actually, you know, is there any actual technology expertise? I mean, it could a tech executive like this bring to a company like Time, uh, hey, look, here's how you build a, a platform at scale. Here's how you hire top software engineers, that kind of thing. I do think that Bezos has changed the culture of the post and made it, you know, stressed that it needs to be very customer oriented and and customer centric and um, nimble and technologically agile and uh, and all those things so i i don't think it's just you know the the phrase that bezos used when he first bought the post was he wanted to give it runway he wanted to give it you know the financial stability so that it could you know get going and take off um but he also, I think, has contributed to the to the culture and and in fact to the sort of technological direction of it. And I can't tell you uh, exactly how involved he is on that end, but I think I think he is. So yeah, I think that there's there's a potential upside there for legacy companies who are trying to figure out you know what to do in the post print world, and certainly Time Magazine is one of those. You know, it's a great brand. It's an iconic brand, as Benioff has said. And and it still has that, interestingly, you know, it still has that cachet when when Time Magazine does a cover on someone or, you know, with a very interesting or sort of stunning depiction of Donald Trump uh, underwater or whatever, you know, whatever they've been, people do pay attention to that cover. And we know that President Trump pays a lot of attention to how many times he's been on the on the time cover and and all that sort of thing. So it still carries that weight, but it's struggling. Um, It is profitable, I understand, but it certainly is less profitable than it used to be and is struggling to deal with the demise of print advertising. Right. And Benioff did buy this actually with his wife, Lynn, and they did say they are going to help with some of the digital transition stuff. But similar to how Bezos has so far treated The Washington Post, kind of keep their hands out of the editorial process and just, you know, let the business run as as it would. Uh, but I am curious, though, because it, it seems like, you know, this is perhaps a better arrangement than, say, a group of venture capitalists, you know, swooping in and buying it, because then they're going to be working the kind of lowest common denominator of the interest of all of those people who are working who are co-owning the paper through the venture capital firm, which would be to profit. And so it seems like with with these tech uh, executives, they are, I don't know if this is a pet project for them, but at least they have some level of values that they're adopting these publications with. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We, you know, one of the really difficult uh, and bad developments in 
in journalism in recent years is that hedge funds have bought up a lot of new, you know, regional and small, you know, small to medium sized and even large local newspapers. And, you know, like Alden Global Capital, right. which is one of the big villains, which, you know, has bought um, a bunch of a bunch of papers, including probably most famously the Denver Post and taken their newsroom numbers down to the point where they really can't cover their communities. I think with the billionaires we're talking about, they are they seem to be invested in trying to keep the quality of the product that they've just bought. You know, they've bought it. I, you know, it's hard to say why. I'm sure there's a variety of reasons. Is it a pet project, as you said? Is it a vanity project? Or is it because they really want this publication to succeed and they, you know, they can both, you know, sort of do well by doing good? So, you know, I'm sure that it, there's a, a sort of a whole range of, of reasons. But I do think it's a, a, a lot better than having to please the shareholders by keeping keeping the profit margin up at all costs. Right. And if you look at the history of media ownership, it's certainly not a new thing to have business magnates or billionaires coming in and, and buying a media empire, partly as a vanity project. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It has led to some pretty impressive media empires. That said, if you go back in history, some of those uh, uh, money bags who were, were media kingpins have used their publications as organs to advance their agenda or to advance their political careers um, or, or things like that. Um, you know, start a war <laughs> um, in, in a, you know, in a famous case. Um, what is it like when you're, you know, you work for Jeff Bezos, you must feel some pressure not to uh, write something agitating for antitrust action against Amazon. You know, how do the Washington Post's business reporters think about their obligations when Bezos is their owner? I mean, even if he's not standing at their side to saying, write this, don't write that, there must still be an imaginary Bezos on their shoulder when they're covering his company. So I've I've actually, in just in the past week or so, I've had the opportunity to hear Marty Barron talk about that very thing because I was in a group of uh, world, you know, international press fellows and they asked him that question. And, you know, he cited a number of pretty tough stories that the Post has done on Amazon. And, you know, again, well, as you said, it's not going to be a phone call. Don't do this story. But do you, you know, do you hold your, is there self-censorship? Do you hold yourself back? Um, you know, I don't know. I don't work in the business department and I and I but I do see uh, pieces in the post, whether on the opinion pages or on the business pages that are, you know, very far from being positive coverage or puff pieces. Now, are they going to be the big takedown of Amazon that uh, The New York Times did a couple of years ago in which, you know, it described the brutal workplace and so on? You know, maybe not. But um, I, I think that certainly covering the news and looking a step further is not at all frowned on or or impossible to do. And I should say, uh, this is my second billionaire because when I was, uh, I spent a long time at the Buffalo News as a uh, as a reporter and all kinds of editors and then eventually the top editor and uh, our chairman was Warren Buffett. And so uh, I can tell you that in the 12 years that I was editor of the paper and I I also ran the editorial. Uh, I, I was on the editorial board, so had some say over the opinion pages as well as the news pages. Um, you know, he he never ever got involved. You know, it was not ever that he said. Uh, and he was a Hillary supporter and a uh, you know a Democratic donor and all of that. But but you know, we made endorsements and we we didn't say well what would 
what would Warren think about this? You know, it really it, it is very possible that there just aren't a presence um, on that side and they make a commitment not to be and they live and they live that way. One thing that strikes me about this kind of new class of media baron that's coming from the tech industry, and it does make sense that they would come from the tech industry because, you know, the five wealthiest companies in the world are pretty much situated between Cupertino and Seattle, uh, is that they became so wealthy and so big thanks to all kinds of, you know, uh, regulatory restraint from the government, a homogenous investor culture that overwhelmingly awards money to companies that are owned by white men, Sometimes uh, dependence on production via inhumane factory labor abroad and handsomely paid technical staff in the U.S., right? A philosophy of innovating first and cleaning up the negative consequences later, tax avoidance. Uh, And, you know, they're also kind of at the heart of a lot of the political issues that are boiling over right now, whether it's Cambridge Analytica or the elections, disinformation, uh, antitrust. And I'm curious if you have thoughts about this one particular industry or so many owners coming from this one particular industry, because, yes, we have seen billionaires own media properties throughout, you know, the past 100 years. That's not a strange thing. And and uh, and they have shown different levels of respect for keeping their hands off those. But it seems like in this case, we see one industry buying media properties in this kind of short amount of time. Yeah. And I think it's untested at this point or not not fully tested. We don't know, you know, when the rubber hits the road, how are, you know, to what extent will their ownership make a difference? And is that, in fact, in the back of some of their minds um, when they when they do buy these properties up? Now, it's it's a little hard to think that Time magazine is going to be, you know, crusading for for any of the issues that Benioff and, and the Benioffs would would care about. But you know, again, we we really we really don't know. This is all very recent. So uh, I think it's going to play out and we'll see what happens. Right. So when Chris Hughes bought the New Republic, there were a lot of high hopes in the industry that this was a new model, that that a savior, a wealthy savior from the tech industry would come in, take over a struggling but but editorially worthy publication and give it the infusion of cash and resources, the runway, I think, to use your words, that it needed to get going again. Um, but that one actually it did not end well. Uh, Hughes clashed with, uh, I think, some of the magazine's leadership. There was an exodus. There was a lot of staff turnover. And then a little while after he got there, he said, you know what? We actually do need to make money and we're not making any money. So let's make a bunch of changes that could put us on that path. And that, I think, went against what some people's expectations uh, were. Um, and uh, so do these do these tech executives expect to eventually make money, do you think? And and if and when the the rubber meets the road on that, could things still go awry? Well, so one difference with Chris Hughes was that he certainly did not keep a hands-off approach. Um, I mean, I remember he did a big, I think he did a big interview with Obama, and he was a presence on the editorial side of the magazine. So there's, you know, that difference right away. I suspect that uh, for a lot of the new buyers, they're not really, I mean, this is my gut feeling. I you know, don't really know. But I doubt that they care tremendously if the if their publication makes a lot of money. I suspect they would like it not to be a continual and endless cash drain. So, you know, if they made a dollar a year, maybe that would be okay. Um, and of course, it would be great if they could if they could make it profitable and really make it work as a business. But I don't I don't think that that's the primary motivation here. And it's probably more just 
don't let it be a disaster. And the magazine business is tough right now. You know, it's still very, you know, the the transformation from print to fully digital is underway, but a lot of the revenue is still coming from print. And, you know, once we have a recession, which is inevitable, a lot of that sort of, you know, still hanging around print um, advertising revenue could easily go away and force a crisis. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because the backdrop here is tough times in the media business. And it's been tough times to, of one sort or another for the past 10, 15 years. But it really seems like nobody, for all of the experimentation, for all of the actually worthy innovations that have gone on, uh, companies like BuzzFeed or Gawker, uh, uh, all sorts of, of new models, Axios, Politico, that have sprung up, it doesn't seem like there has emerged a a steady path to profitability or sustainability in all that time. And so we're kind of back to just like hoping a billionaire buys a media company and and hope and like lets it lose money. Right. I mean, I do think that, you know, I've certainly studied the, the New York Times and the Washington Post as much as as I can. And I think in in those cases, so both of those publications are are profitable. They have you know, turned their attention, you know, the Times uh, maybe a little bit earlier, but certainly the Post now to, you know, less about digital advertising revenue and much more about subscriptions. So, you know, getting people to really feel a strong, strong connection with these newspapers or whatever we're going to call news organizations to the point where they just feel like, well, I want to, I, you know, I don't want to run up against that paywall. I want to have free access, you know, total access to it every day. And therefore, I'm willing to pony up and, and pay the money. And I think that the ones that will make it probably will be able to have that kind of really strong bond. You know, in a, they may have other forms of revenue, but they're they're going to have to rely on their, you know, their readers or their customer base to be a, a major source of of supporting them. I don't think there's any way around that. One question I, I, I have left is uh, about Bezos' relationship to the union at The Washington Post. I know that there has been tense contract negotiations between uh, the editorial staff and management under Bezos. And I'm curious if you have any update or comment on that. I don't really have a, a lot of detailed knowledge about it. There has been a, a contract that was approved. I know that people aren't tremendously happy with it. And they certainly made the case that because Bezos is so rich that he should be able to do more, um, you know, for the union members in terms of 401k and so on. And they have settled. So, um, you know, of course, that's going to be a pressure point. Margaret Sullivan, great having you here. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks, Will. Thanks, April. It was great to chat with you. One final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, Will, it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. What could you not close this week? All right. My tab this week is something that I really know very little about, but it just stuck out to me as interesting, maybe worrisome. Uh, I learned a lot from reading it. This was a piece in Engadget, the tech blog, um, by Violet Blue, and the headline was, Why PayPal's Crackdown on ASMR Creators Should Worry You. First, I should explain for those who don't know what ASMR is. I am in that camp. What is ASMR? I should know. I hear it all the time. I'm so embarrassed, but I'm just going to admit that now. What is it? (laughs) No, and I thought I knew what the acronym stood for, and then I realized I didn't. I had to go look it up again. So it's Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. So it's like this tingling sensation that some people get. It's sort of related to synesthesia. You get it when you're having some other sensory experience. So one of the common triggers is whispering. You'll see like a video of someone whispering into a fluffy microphone. Um, scratching and tapping can do it. Uh, here I'm reading from the, the ASMRlab.com on, of common ASMR triggers. Um, the sound of pages turning um, or uh, watching Bob Ross paint or hearing his paintbrush on the canvas. Th- these trigger this ASMR response in some people. And there has, be- has sprung up this cottage industry of people making videos designed to trigger people's ASMR. There is a subsection of these videos, apparently, which I learned from this, this story, um, that's sexual in some way. And so that has subjected the subgenre to scrutiny from the various platforms. Um, I guess YouTube had demonetized some ASMR video creators at one point. Um, in China, this is again according to the Engadget story, in China they had banned videos of uh, ASMR sound effects uh, under the guise of, of cleansing the internet of pornography. And now apparently, for this based on the ASMR subreddit of Reddit, PayPal is banning people, banning ASMR video creators, keeping them from using PayPal to make money. Uh, And so Violet Blue is is upset about this. She's railing against it. She makes the case that we should all worry about this sort of expansion of of anti-porn sentiment to to delegitimize otherwise legitimate video creators and artists. So this is really fascinating to me because we always have to remember the adage, which I believe is rooted in truth, that about half the Internet is porn. Right. And so whenever that half of the Internet creeps over into the Internet that we occupy most of the time, there's always some friction, some awkwardness uh, and a reminder that people use the Internet for sexual pleasure 
all the time. So uh, this is a fascinating story to me and one that I actually want to start following a bit more because it is a really good example of, you know, sex on the Internet uh, creeping over into the Internet that the rest of us or that, that we all publicly occupy. That's a great point. And I want to I want to note also that that PayPal did respond to Engadget's mm. story um, and the, the sourcing on the claim that PayPal is banning ASMR video creators seems a little thin to me. Um, sure. PayPal says that they do not have a policy against ASMR related content that does not otherwise violate their acceptable use policy. So I, I guess PayPal's stance is, look, the people claiming this really are doing stuff that's against our terms. It's not because they're doing ASMR. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that, that other platforms uh, have have taken action against ASMR creators. So, uh, yes, it's one of those interesting, I guess, blurry blurry lines between what people consider acceptable and, and not acceptable, or maybe just a mistake on the, on the part of the platforms in some cases. April, what tab could you not close this week? My tab this week comes from the pages of Slate.com. It is an interview by our colleague Isaac Chotner with the editor of the New York Review of Books about his decision to publish an essay uh, that was on the front page of the prestigious publication uh, by Gian Gomeshi. I might be mispronouncing that. Gian Gomeshi was a journalist with the CBC in Canada who was accused by, I believe, upwards of 20 women of violent sexual assault and uh, is not in jail and, in fact, was able to uh, publish an essay in one of the most prestigious publications in the country. And uh, it is about his perspective on being called out and uh, by his victims, right, and being a subject of the Me Too movement. Uh, And Isaac interviewed the editor of the New York Review of Books, Ian Baruma, about his decision to publish uh, this perspective, which I believe was a misguided opinion. It was a fantastic interview, though, with the editor of the New Review of Books uh, because it revealed, among many things, a pattern that I've seen over and over again play out when it comes with uh, when it comes to men in power talking about the Me Too movement. Uh, You know, we see uh, in this interview, Baruma wave off repeated allegations of Gomeshi's sexual violence as unproven. Um, he leans on the criminal justice system in the interview, uh, saying that Gomeshi, uh, you know, is not in jail, that that he was let off uh, and that, you know, the criminal justice system did not prosecute him uh, in, in a strong way uh, and does not account for the systemic holes in the criminal justice system that lets violent offenders off. Right. Because it's always as he sh- he said, she said conversation. And it's very, very hard to, to prosecute sexual assault cases. Um, and instead, they lean on that as as, a, as showing that the person uh, is, is innocent in that case, uh, despite, as I said, repeated uh, a- accusations from, I believe, over 20 women. Um, and and this interview shows a man who is at one of the most prestigious posts in publishing taking that pattern, that tack. And uh, it is revealing to, to see just uh, how men who control uh, the America's publishing industry, or at least some men, uh, feel about uh, the, in my opinion, revolutionary Me Too movement that has unfolded over the past year. Yeah, I didn't read that uh that essay by Gian Gomeshi. I didn't either. In... I actually just read Isaac's. I read parts of it, actually. But yeah. Okay. But it came the same week as uh, Harper's Magazine right. published an essay by John Hockenberry, the, the radio journalist, uh, former host of the 
public radio show, The Takeaway. That I did read, and, yes. And that one, yeah, I read that one too. And it, it was uh, Mike Pesca actually in Slate. If you want to, if I can piggyback on this tab, Mike Pesca in Slate had a, had a, a good uh, re- rejoinder to that Harper's essay. Um, he called Hockenberry's essay, quote, Logaria as Apologia. Um, and I, I think rightly points out that uh, Hockenberry is is raising excuse after excuse after excuse for his behavior and then trying to say, oh, I, I understand there's no excuse. I'm not trying to make excuses. But the whole thing is just a bunch of excuses. And not only that, but but extremely pompous excuses where he, you know, he's comparing himself to the, the great romantics of history. Oh my gosh. But yeah, we're in an, in an interesting moment um, uh, where, uh, you know, Me Too has been going on for a while and now we're getting the the uh, the big uh, prestigious, glossy essays by by the men who uh, had victimized women, and it doesn't seem like they invent they invited the victims to uh, to publish their accounts. I mean, maybe they have, but we're not seeing them with these big glossy stories. We're seeing the perpetrators of violence, and you know, I really want to point out again that the criminal justice system uh, it's been proven in so many academic studies of the criminal justice system that it is not work very well or at all when it comes to prosecuting sexual violence cases. You know, not only are these cases extremely underreported, uh, but then when they are reported and, uh, and, and authorities are called in, it's very rare to see uh, actual action taken, and it's very common to see men get let off the hook. Uh, and it's because, again, we're reduced to this he said, she said situation. Uh, I thought that uh, Isaac's interview was absolutely a must read to understand kind of the thinking behind somebody that would make such an editorial decision as to give uh, Gomeshi a platform. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. You can get updates about what's coming next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions. We definitely see the emails. One day we might do a mailbag episode. We probably definitely will do a mailbag episode. Not sure when that will be, but we are reading them. And please continue to say hi. You can follow me on April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Remus, and April is at April Laser. Thanks again to our guest, Margaret Sullivan. You can follow her work at WashingtonPost.com and find her on Twitter at SullyView. She's one of my favorite followers on Twitter. Thanks also to everybody who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We're still a relatively new show. We've been gaining audience and we're so grateful for that. And one reason is that when you go and leave a review, that makes Apple or, or the platform uh, put us higher in their rankings and then other people can actually find it. Um, so we really deeply appreciate that. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music is by Doug Chase. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez for engineering here in Berkeley, California. And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We'll see y'all next week. Or I guess you'll hear us, rather. <laughs>